Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast for February 2017. This month, genetically diverse newts and BT toxin-resistant moths. Head a few kilometres out of Barcelona and you'll find a mountain range called the Montseny Massif. Climb up their steep sides and you may come across a few small, fast-running streams. And if you're very lucky, you may just spot a small brown creature darting about inside one of them, the Montseny Brook Newt. And when I say lucky, I mean it. There are estimated to only be around 1,500 of these newts left in the wild. They all live in a tiny area, just a few square kilometres across, and even this is divided in half by a river. Ana Soler of the Autonomous University of Barcelona in Spain was particularly interested in how this isolated, fragmented species was coping from a genetic perspective, and so she set out to find out more. I called up Anna, and she started out by giving me some background on this little brown newt. Well, this is really an interesting species because it has been uh, recently described. It was described just in 2005 in a mountain massive that is really near from Barcelona, just 40 kilometers from Barcelona. So we had a new species with a very, very restricted uh, distribution range. So it was only distributed in eight square kilometers, but even more, this distribution range is really um, separated into, into two different valleys from the same mountain. And what would you usually expect to find in a species which has been so isolated for such a long time? We expect to find uh, very low levels of genetic diversity and also high inbreeding. We expected that this species was getting into the extinction vortex, so that means that once one's population is small, it gets low levels of genetic diversity, it brings into inbreeding, which again brings to even lower genetic diversity values. And so we were really worrying if this species was going to, to extinct really uh, soon. So what is it that you did in your study? Uh, well, the first thing was we wanted to test uh, how this species was uh, uh, was genetically diverse or not, uh, and then how, how this species was distributed, the population structure of this species. And we wanted to test if this uh, natural fragmentation also had uh, any genetic effect to this species. And you found something surprising when you did all this research and all these studies. So the, the first thing surprising it was that this species was able to maintain uh, uh, similar diversity values, similar genetic diversity values, than its sister species, for example, the Pyrenean brook newt, 
which has a really much higher distribution range. And also another thing that we found is really low values of uh, effective population sizes between 25 and 30 effective individuals per stream. So that, that was really low. But we found no levels of inbreeding in those streams. Now, that's, that strikes me as really confusing because usually low levels of population size, effective population size indicates that there'll be a high level of inbreeding. How, how do you think that these newts are managing this? The females present a spermatozoite, so they have cloacal glands where they can store uh, sperm from males. So that may help the females to use those sperms whenever they want. And also it has been shown this species to, to have multiple paternity. That means the same female could mate with different males. And also uh, we are thinking in some kind of uh, strategies the female could choose to, f- to, to mate with those males more genetically dissimilar. We don't know really how, but we found that uh, those females were mating really different males. How unprecedented was this discovery, this sort of maintenance of genetic diversity despite the tiny population? Have, have we seen it before in other animals or is this something that is really quite new? Well, in fact, it's, it's, it's really quite new because we, we, had, uh, we had the precedent that uh, amphibians could live with, with very low effective population sizes. But uh, we did, I think it's the first time ever that we found those highest levels of genetic diversity in such a, uh, a restricted species. I, I wonder what this might mean for the conservation of this species because often conservation efforts, especially with small fragments, fragmented populations, often the aim is to try to increase that genetic diversity. But this doesn't seem to be a problem so much in this situation. These genetic results were really surprising. But the thing is that the distribution area is um, still really worrying because uh, the Monsen Natural Park, it is a natural park, but the area is not really managed to conserve these species. However, a captive breeding program started in 2007 when we detected this fragile situation of these species. So they start a captive breeding program with the, with the aim of maintaining a genetic stock just in case something happened in too wild because we are talking about just eight square kilometres, so it's a really reduced area. And so I suppose it is really important to mention here that these newts have been isolated and fragmented not by human activity but by natural activity. Yeah, that's 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 important thing that we should to keep in mind, not to to confuse the natural habitat fragmentations with the anthropogenic habitat loss or degradations. So that's why we, we we still keep warning all the policymakers that this species needs to be really in focus to manage these species to keep the captive breeding program just in case something happens in wild. That was Ana Soler from the Autonomous University of Barcelona in Spain. Managing crop pests is a multi-billion dollar industry. One method of preventing the damage pests can cause to crops uses genetic engineering to allow the plants to produce their own pesticides – Specifically, something called BT toxins. So-called BT crops were introduced decades ago and have been hugely successful, but they weren't the end to the problem, and resistance to these toxins has started to arise. 
Pascal Compagne, now of the Collège du France in Paris, wanted to find out more. Whilst he was based at the University of Liverpool in the UK, he decided to investigate how resistance to Bt maize arose in one particular species of moth, the African stork borer. I spoke with Pascal, who started with some background on Bt-resistant crops. There are actually many species in which uh, resistance evolution uh, has been observed, but there are a few fewer cases in which um, resistance leading to uh, control failure in the field uh, has been reported. Explain that to me. What do you mean by resistance leading to control failure? What you can do when you study uh, evolution of resistance, you you can study how the susceptibility of the individuals of a population evolves over time. But in most of the cases, you would observe that, but you wouldn't observe problems of infestation in the field. While in the case of uh, Bussola fusca, which is one of a few cases which uh, lead to uh, resistance evolution associated with problems in the field. It's a moth which uh, lays eggs in maize plants and then very quickly after hatching, the larvae would go into the stem of the plant and then would tend to go down in the plant and doing so, they would damage the plant so much. And you wanted to work out exactly how this resistance was arising and how it was moving throughout the population of this particular moth, the African stork borer. How did you go about doing that? We're kind of starting from scratch for these species. So what we did was a bit exploratory. So we first did some crosses to see how the progeny could survive. This is very basic information, but it's quite important. And then we started trying to sample larvae in the field. The ultimate goal was to be able to compare populations you find on Bt and populations you find on non-Bt and trying to see which loci in the genome are differentiated so that they can be associated with uh, resistance. And there were some loci that appeared. There were four, in fact, loci that you identified that were particularly of interest. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Yeah, well, that's right. So these loci, actually, they were uh, clearly differentiated uh, between non-BT and BT crops. And so uh, when you compare that, you you, you clearly see a different distribution between these type of fields. What's quite particular in this space is we observed that the resistance trait was not recessively inherited, let's put it that way. And so it also kind of tends to explain why our resistance may evolve so quickly. So you were interested not just in where on the genome or where on the you know where these genes were. You also were interested in how those genes spread. You can use further use these markers just to see how far in in space they are linked to resistance. We try to come up with a theoretical model to see how fast resistance can travel in space. And it turns out the the answer is pretty quickly, it seems. Well, in fact, it's typically a few tens of kilometers a year. So within, let's say, 10 kilometers a year uh, through 10 years, you already already have a 100-kilometer radius, which is quite a significant scale. That's that seems very significant. How does that compare to the way resistance spreads in other insects and so on? Well, actually, that's um, partly 
One interest of uh, this study is you know, even if it's still scarce, we are trying to you know, uh, map the distribution of resistance uh, in these uh, crops, which is uh, not very clearly understood in other species. So um, no, actually, that's quite an original finding of, uh, of this study. Now, now, what does this mean for, for pest management programs? What we observe in our pest species is that we have uh, intensive gene flow. So when you have intensive gene flow from uh, a general perspective, you could say, well, it's great because normally gene flow may uh, swamp local adaptation, you know, slower uh, resistance evolution. So normally that's a good point. But also on the other side of uh, the coin, um, it also means that when you have intensive gene flow, you know, um, genes are exchanged at kind of broad special scale, and so um, you know, advantageous uh, characters may travel in space kind of quickly. So what we observe in this space is you know, once resistance appeared, it's very hard to you know, to control. The main thing you can do is you know, kind of changing um, you know, the variety you're, you're cultivating. For example, reducing the proportion of um, Bt crop in the landscape so that the you know, selection, in fact, is uh, you know, weaker and then um, the resistance traits travel you know, at a much uh, slower um, speed. That was Pascal Compagna from the Collège du France in Paris, who was based at the University of Liverpool in the UK when he did that work. And that's all from this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Tune in next month and thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.